Hi, I'm Rebecca. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Allie, and you're listening to Desk Chair Detectives. Hey. Okay. And action. You excited? Me? Yeah. <clears throat> Let me just <clears throat> clear my throat and gargle a little salt water. Everybody I'm loves sure. my voice. I'm sure my mom's excited. <laughs> He's Allie's number one fan. <laughs> he commented on the post about the Westfield Watcher like three times. He texted me 12 times about it. Like, Shout out to You like Allie more than me. <laughs> well, I just, I, and it's funny because I haven't heard my own voice in so long because I refuse to listen to my own voice. So when you told me, you're like, everybody's loving the sound of your voice. I was like, really? Why? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it's that pleasant. Well, the viewers, the listeners, they like it. Good. That's all that matters. My mom likes it. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. My number one fan. Yeah. It's fine. Okay. Um, all right. So are you guys ready? Yeah. Okay. All I ready. Putting, I was just putting my phone on. Do not disturb. All right, so I'm going to tell you about the Velisca Axe murders. Have you heard of it? I know it. What is it again? Say it again. The Velisca Axe murders. Hmm. No, I don't think I've heard of it. Really? Because I started like, I just like started Googling random things and this one came up and I started reading about it and I forgot that I've read about it a few times and I've I feel like I've probably heard another like podcast talk about it, but sorry, I feel like once I get into it, you might know okay. for some reason. Okay. Um, so before we get into it, I just need to forewarn you that this is one of the most mismanaged case- murder cases in the history of the U.S. So it gets, it. it like really frustrates me. <laughs> I love a mismanaged case. I know, I know, I know. Okay, so this happened over a hundred years ago. Nice historical murder for you guys. On the morning of June tenth, nineteen twelve, Mary Peckham was just starting her morning in the flourishing town of Aliska, Iowa. Around five a.m., Mary stepped outside and began hanging her laundry to dry. Which, like, I can't even imagine the world at five a.m. <laughs> And that means she already did laundry, right? Like it's wet and clean. Right, yeah, like, <laughs> like you know what? Just woke up at 3 a.m., got to get yeah. started on my day. <laughs> Things were different in 1912. Yeah. They weren't up till 2 o'clock in the morning watching no. TikToks the night before. So. <laughs> they, they were practicing their TikTok dances in the yard <laughs> with the cows on the farm. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So a couple hours later, so this is around like 7 a.m., she realized her neighbors, the Moore family, hadn't become their own chores. And in fact, the home itself was unusually still. Nosy. Yeah, right? And that's like, if I was up at 7 a.m. and I was the only one up around, like my neighbors weren't up, that'd be totally normal to me. Yeah, that is me as as a neighbor. If If I had a house, I'd be like, yeah, like, on your doors open I'd be the watcher <laughs> your porch light on yeah. <laughs> the watcher <laughs> the Morristown washer yeah. okay so 
So this worried Mary because she ended up approaching the house and knocking on the door, nosy, but there was no answer and the door was locked. After Mary let out the Morse family chickens, <laughs> she called a family member of the Moore family, Ross Moore, for help. Ross Moore was the brother to the patriarch of the family home, Josiah Moore. Upon his arrival at the Moore house, he looked into the windows, knocked on the door, and shouted, hoping to get some sort of response from anyone inside. When no one answered, Ross took out his set of keys and tried them on the front door. After finding one that worked on the front door, he entered the home while Mary waited on the front porch. Suspicious that he just happened to have a key to that front door. Yeah. Right? Okay. Well, I'm also picturing like a janitor's key. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, he's just like jiggling around. <laughs> yeah. Did he have everybody in the neighborhood's like key? That's what I mean. <laughs> oh, you, you're locked out of your house, Susan, from the don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. Don't, don't worry, I got you. <laughs> Okay, so when Ross entered the home, he entered the very first bedroom off the parlor. As he entered the room, he saw two bodies on the bed and dark stains on their bedclothes. Upon seeing the bodies, Ross ran back out to the front porch and told Mary to call Henry Hank Horton, Villisca's primary peace officer. Hank arrived at around 8.30 a.m. to investigate the home. When he came out of the home, he told Ross that there was somebody murdered in every bed, Ooh. which like horrifying. Can't you even. Said peace officer. A peace officer. I'm just getting like Hunger Games vibes. Yeah, that yeah. I I was gonna I meant to look up what the difference was and I didn't, but I'm assuming it's like a step below cop. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> um. So the two victims that were found in the bedroom Ross had entered were Lena Stillinger, who was 12, and her sister, Ina, who was eight. The two sisters had been invited to stay the night at the Moore home by Catherine Moore after a children's day at church. The rest of the victims who were found in the upstairs bedrooms by Hank were Josiah Moore, who was 43, his wife, Sarah Moore, who was 39, Herman Moore, age 11, Catherine Moore, age nine, Boyd Moore, age seven, and Paul Moore, age five. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Eight people? Yeah. Oh my God. Eight people. Yeah. And most of them were children. Yeah. And they were all almost, they were all almost under the age of 10. And you said they weren't all like, was it Sarah and Josiah? They weren't all their kids. Some of them were. So, friends or relatives? Yeah, so the family has um, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul, and then Sarah and Josiah were the parents, and then Catherine was friends with these two other little girls from church, and they stayed the night and were sleep, like slept over and stayed in the downstairs bedroom. Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit more about the family too, just so like they're not just victims they have stories and there wasn't too much to find so I tried to find a little something but um so Josiah Moore was one of Aliska's most prominent businessmen he married Sarah Montgomery on December 6th 1899 in her parents house 
The couple lived together in Villisca for 13 years prior to their deaths. They were active members in their church and Sarah actually led the children's safe activities the day before they were murdered. Herman was the oldest child of the Moore family and he was often quoted as being his father's son and was often seen at his dad's side. Um, Catherine, like I said, was super close to the Cylinder sisters and the youngest children, Boyd and Paul, they were so young, so sad. They've only ever been shown in one photograph because of how young they were and how, I guess, rare photography was back then. Their family was super active in their church. Um, oh, Lena and Ina were born on the Stillinger family farm. Are they twins? I think one is eight like and one's 12. Those would be good um, twin names. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so cute. Um, but they were all very active in church and that's how the Moore family met the Stillingers. So, very weird crime scene. <laughs> I'll just get into it. Doctors estimated the time of death was somewhere between midnight and 5 p.m. There were two cigarette butts found in the attic, suggesting that the killer or killers patiently waited for the family of their, and their guests to fall asleep before attacking them. Nope. Just like, Wait, I where just, was like, it found? Was it found? In their attic. So whoever the killers were, were quote unquote, like waiting in their attic for them? Yeah. Uh, that's like so creepy to think about too is just like this guy with like an axe like in the attic just like chain smoking (laughs) like he had a time to think about it too you know like if he was like just waiting he had time to contemplate if he really wanted to do this or not and he still decided to do it yeah oh that's really creepy yeah okay this is weird but I bet he had to like pee really bad you know when you're like yeah. playing hide and go seek and you like have to pee. I couldn't imagine like <laughs> sitting up there just like waiting. Yeah, for the yeah because moment. you also have to have like so much anxiety. And I know like yeah. when I have anxiety, I'm like I gotta go, I gotta go, and then I try to go and nothing happens. <laughs> That's really creepy. I don't like that. Yeah. Um, all eight victims had been bludgeoned to death. While the killer or killers used the blade of the axe on Josiah, every other victim had been. Um, hit 20 to 30 times with the blunt end of the axe, which was left at the crime scene. Mm -hmm. So the parents were attacked first. Josiah was so badly cut that his eyes were missing. Yeah. Oh my God. The ceiling in both the parents' and children's bedrooms showed gouge marks from the upswing of the axe. No, uh, yeah that is like an aggressive yeah yeah and it's like how much if it was one person I mean even two people eight people is a lot of people to do that to 20 to 30 times yeah get tired how tall was this person also yeah they so when I was doing I don't know if I put in here but when I was doing the research there was a suspect they had but he was only five two, and they were like, no, "There's no way he's this not guy." Not in those ceilings, right? So I don't know. And they think it, like they're never. They weren't sure if it was one or two people. Yeah, true. But they only found one axe at the crime mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. 
So leaning more towards one, I would think, unless they took turns. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a lot of like swings. Yeah. Like if if each of them were like cut, what was it, twenty times? Yeah, that's like at, that's at that's at least a hundred and sixty. Like sorry, that's a lot. That was good. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, copywriter. <laughs> I do words, not numbers, but I'm okay, I guess. Um, all of them were found in their beds, and their heads and faces were covered with bedclothes after they had all been killed. Investigators believe that all of the victims were killed while they had been asleep, which is a very interesting to me. Yeah, just all because. The- based on what you just said you know what I mean yeah like, like you know were, not one person made a noise or right like they were hit so hard and killed like immediately like the other kids didn't wake up in the room even though we're all sleeping in one room yeah. like all the kids were in one room I know the two sisters were downstairs yeah. so there was the two sisters were in a downstairs bedroom the parents were in one room and then the other four kids were in another room well, I mean, as a kid, if you hear something or, like, even see that happening, like, what are the odds that they, like, get up and even run? Like, they might be so, yeah. like, astounded yeah. what's going on and scared. Yeah, they just, like, sit there and don't know yeah. what to do. Yeah. So, um, it's funny you say that because <laughs> <laughs> Lena Sillinger might have been awake when her attacker killed her she had been found lying crosswise on the bed with a blood stain on her knee and a possible defensive wound on her arm oh, and this I didn't put this in here but she was actually sharing a bed with her sister um so I'm assuming since she woke up that her sister probably died first since she was in the bed with her which like oh, horrible yeah. for a 12 year old yeah. oh yeah. my gosh like if it couldn't, if it wasn't bad enough. No, it doesn't get any better. (laughs) It doesn't get any better. Um, so she was also found with her nightgown pushed up and she was left exposed. Doctors concluded that she hadn't been sexually assaulted in that way, but they obviously couldn't conclude if she was like sexually molested or something like that. The axe was also left in Lena and Ana Sillinger's bedroom. Um, Although it was covered in blood, there was an attempt to clean off the axe. And the investigation concluded that the axe was actually belonged to Josiah Moore. So the murder scene was obviously very bloody and horrifying, but it was also very bizarre and random. There were kerosene lamps that had been found at the foot of the beds in both Josiah and Sarah's room and the room of the Stillinger girls. Sarah's shoes were found on Josiah's side of the bed, which I guess wouldn't seem too unusual, but because of this, because of this one detail, like they were able to determine just how either angry or something this guy was. Um, it was found on its side and had blood stains inside of it as well as under it. So it was the coroner's assumption that the shoe was upright when Josiah was hit with the ax, 
and then blood dripped into it. And then the killer went back after killing Sarah and knocked the shoe over and that knocked the blood out of the shoe. So he could go strike Josiah again after he already killed him. Like he tripped over it or... Yeah. So like he was, he already hit him, then he went to go hit Sarah. And then at one point in the night, he ended up going back and hitting Josiah again and knocked the shoe over. That's so creepy. Yeah. Um, In the kitchen, there was a pan of bloody water uh, found on the table, as well as a plate of uneaten food. Investigators believe that the suspect or suspects likely washed their hands in the pan and then left it. There was also a two pound slab of bacon on the floor next to where the ax was found. And it was wrapped in a dish towel. I mean, this whole thing is weird, but that's just. Yeah. Um, and there was one another. wasteful and oh. two <laughs> creepy. Um, there was another slab of bacon found in the ice box. So I guess they assumed that they were both in the freezer at one point, but they don't really know why it was. Is he just going to like take the the slab of bacon with him and then decided, no, just kidding, I'm going to leave it here? Yeah, like Like, he forgot it. Why else? That's so strange. He was hungry. (laughs) I mean, probably a workout, but I don't know. Bacon would be a weird thing. (laughs) Yeah, but it's also raw bacon. Yeah. Yeah, he'd have to like stay and cook it. Interesting. Um, So weird. The slab of bacon is really throwing me. Yeah. This part I thought was very interesting too. All of the curtains were drawn over all the windows in the house, except for two. And the two windows that didn't have curtains were covered up with clothing belonging to the Moore family. And all the mirrors and glass in the home were also covered. And interestingly enough, all of the doors were locked. From the inside. Hmm. Yeah. Ooh, I don't like that. I don't like that. I just picture the guy, like, or or woman, you know, could be up in this attic, and then just like creeping around, covering mirrors and locking doors while they were sleeping. Right. Oh, it would be so much creepier too if it happened like while they were sleeping, and not. Oh yeah, I guess it could have happened like after, right? While he's waiting for his bacon to defrost, like covering. <laughs> oh, that's. A, I just picture tiptoeing and it like just tiptoeing. <laughs> that creepy song, like tiptoe. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, so god, that mi- the mirror thing is so strange. Like he can't look at himself. Yeah, like, yeah. But then that makes me think that he did it beforehand because, like, if he was going from room to room and like accidentally saw his reflection in a mirror like that would throw him off so maybe he did do it beforehand yeah. <laughs> i just got chills i don't like it. i don't know because it like it it that combined with him covering the faces yeah it's, it's like, like he's ashamed, he's ashamed. Yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. wow so, so creepy this part is the part that's probably gonna anger you <laughs> oh no i mean i'm already angry <laughs> well yeah obviously uh but it gets worse. (laughs) News traveled quickly through the small town and curious neighbors and onlookers eventually made their way to the home. The townspeople quickly converged onto the home and law officials lost control of the crime scene. 
It said that as many as a hundred people trampled through the home as they pleased, scattering fingerprints and footprints everywhere, gawking at the bodies of the victims. One individual even removed fragments of Josiah Moore's skull as a keepsake. Stop it. Yeah. Um, what, what, where was this? Iowa, right? Iowa, yep. Um, one, why would hundreds of people want to go into a house where there are six children brutally murdered yeah. and then two parents murdered? Why would they want to see that? Yeah. Why would they want to ruin the investigation? Why would they keep okay a keepsake of a dead man's skull why why like that is something i'm trying to understand it's like was josiah like a prominent man were people like obsessed with him did they want to like cut off his hair and keep a lock of his hair like that's what it sounds like oh yeah god that's these peace officers, man. <laughs> yeah, we need to get some real policemen up in here. It's just so, I feel like back in the day, people just like did crazy shit, like public hangings. Like people would go to like public hangings and be like, yeah, this is the activity of the day. I would go. I don't, you would go? <laughs> I would go. Oh my it, God. I mean, not now, but like back I don't then, know if I could see that. Do? I don't know. Yeah, I guess in the old country, that's like. Yeah. <laughs> the most exciting thing of the time I don't know (laughs) um so there was a few clumsy and futile attempts to search the surrounding countryside for a transient killer but these searches failed to unearth a suspect there was no sign of the murderer's whereabouts and any evidence that could have been found in the crime scene was tainted when dozens of people were allowed to enter and roam the house There seemed to be a never-ending line of suspects in this case as well. The most obvious suspect at the time was Frank Jones, a rough-and-tough local businessman and state senator who was a prominent member of Villisca's Methodist Church. The town quickly split and took sides. The Methodists insisted on Jones's innocence, while the Morris Presbyterian congregation were convinced of his guilt. Question, what, what church did they belong to? The Moore family. Yeah, and the two girls. They were, it was Presbyterian. Okay. Yeah. Did they and say they thought, why that guy? Yeah, um, so, so did, did you said the Presbyterians thought that guy was guilty or the Methodists? So the Methodists were, like Jones was a Methodist, so the Methodists mm-hmm. were defending him, but the more families, Presbyterian church, were convinced that, that he was the, the killer. Got um, it. But I do have, like, they have reasons to believe that. So there was at least two compelling reasons people would believe it. Josiah had worked for um, Jones for seven years and became his star salesman. However, Moore eventually did leave his business due to an overly demanding work schedule where he would work, like, six days a week from 7 a.m. to, like, 11 p.m., so when Moore actually left, he took a very valuable client with him and became like a direct rival of Jones. And though there was no direct evidence of it, 
Moore was also believed to have begun an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law. Mm. Um, Donna Jones was a local beauty whose affairs were actually very well known in town because she had a very um, indiscreet habit of calling her lovers on the telephone. But back then when you made calls, you had to make the call through the assistance of an operator. So the operator would know. <laughs> I would love to be an operator. No Get all the tea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ooh, Allie's calling Mr. Jones a lot. <laughs> What's going on over there at the farm? I don't know why they all live on a farm in my head. <laughs> it's Iowa. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would love to live on a farm One and let out the chickens. Kills, I, I know. I want chickens. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, people said that by the like 1912, the year that the Moore family was murdered, um, their relationship had grown so cold that they would actually avoid each other completely, even like crossing the street and one of them was walking the other way. So they didn't have a good relationship at all at that point. Um, Jones was never formally charged with the crime, but he did become the subject of a grand jury investigation that ended up destroying his reputation and political career. Many in the town were convinced that Jones used his influence to have the case against him squashed. Additionally, few people actually believed that a man of Jones' age and status would have swung the ax himself. He was 57. I mean, my dad's 57 and I don't, he could probably swing the ax. Yeah, like I don't, yeah, I don't, don't, depending on it, like his health, you know, like if he wasn't a healthy 57 year old, like maybe not, but. Yeah, I, I can see. A 57-year-old man swinging an axe 160 plus times. Especially, Especially if they're that they're, angry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If they're yeah. an angry person, you know, the yeah. adrenaline's pumping. So another theory suggested that Jones hired William Blackie Mansfield nine months before the family murders. A similar axe murder occurred in Colorado Springs. Two similar cases followed soon after in Ellsworth and Paola, Kansas. The cases were so similar that it raised the possibility that these crimes were all committed by one individual. There was also numerous other similar murders during this time period that seemed to all be connected. Mansfield was the prime suspect for the murders in Kansas, so that's why they were connecting them all. Um, Detective James Newton Wilkerson suggested Mansfield was a cocaine-addicted serial killer. Not a good heck of a combination. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Newton believed that Mansfield was responsible for the axe murders of his wife, infant child, and in-laws, as well as two other axe glings and the massacre that occurred at the Moore home. According to Wilkerson's investigation, the murders were all committed in the same manner. Each murder, the victims were killed with an axe. All mirrors in the home were covered. A burning lamp was left at the foot of each bed and the pan in which the murderer cleaned himself up was left in the kitchen. In each crime scene, Wilkerson stated that the killer was wearing gloves to avoid leaving leaving fingerprints. There was even a witness that claimed they saw Mansfield the morning after the Moore family murders in nearby Clorinda, and he even told that he, he even told this witness that he had just walked there from Villisca. So it seems like, you know- It has to be this guy, right? Well, you're wrong. (laughs) No. He looked pretty good. It looked pretty good. It sounded pretty (laughs) Yeah. It sounded pretty convincing. (laughs) 
Um, Wilkerson was obviously able to convince a grand jury to open investigation to Mansfield and he was arrested. However, payroll records provided an alibi that put Mansfield in Illinois at the time of the Villisca murders. He was released for lack of evidence and even won a lawsuit that he brought against Wilkerson. Wilkerson believed pressure from Jones resulted in Mansfield's release. So very well could have still been him. We just don't know. They were in cahoots. Yeah, you never know. There was also a very strong possibility that convicted serial axe murderer Henry Lee Moore, no relation to the Moore family, could have been the guilty party they were looking for. Wilkerson's investigation actually hinted the same at one point. Henry Lee Moore was convicted of the murders of his mother and grandmother in Missouri just months after the Moore family killing in Villisca. They were killed just as brutally in the same manner as the Moore family. While he was in jail, Henry refused to speak on the murders and only talked of his innocence. He was eventually released in 1956 at the age of 82, and no further information was available after that point. Whoa. Mm. So don't know what happened to him either. <laughs> I just, I mean, I'm not a killer, but an axe would not be my first Mm-mm. like weapon I no. feel like in this area there's a lot of X yeah it was like the midwest there was yeah. so many there was like I was reading like this wikipedia page they were just like yeah there was a trend of axe murders because it was easy to get an axe I was like yeah I mean didn't you say <laughs> that the the axe that killed that the Moore family was their axe yeah so it's not like the guy even brought a murder weapon yeah. he just knew an axe would be there like, exactly do. Yeah. What can I get my hands on? Yeah. <laughs> um, Max and so, a slab of bacon. It's I'm, still, I'm, I'm still confused about the bacon. Yeah. I feel like there's there's something to it. I should have been an investigator in 1912. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the most believed theories was that a local preacher, Reverend George Jacqueline Kelly, was the one to blame. Kelly was a known sexual deviant and had suffered a mental breakdown as as an adolescent and spent time in a mental health facility. Just because you have a mental breakdown doesn't mean you're a killer. And I don't necessarily love that they like labeled him as a killer because he had a mental breakdown. But and that's like the only reason that was the only reason it was like oh he's also like crazy a little bit. He also like I had mental health issues like he was a peeping tom and was like put an ad out in in, like the paper for like a secretary or something and when someone would respond he would send letters back like horribly vulgar letters back and he actually got charged with like a crime for it this man's a preacher also yeah yeah Yeah. all right nice (laughs) (laughs) he yeah he was convicted of sending obscene material through the mail um he was obsessed with sex he even got caught peering in windows in town days before the murder. He even attended the Children's Day activities that the Moore family and the Solinger girls were at. Although his stature didn't seem to match what they expected of the killer, he was left-handed, which was a match to how they believed the killer swung his axe. Ooh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's just nuts to me. How, like, it was so long ago, but they still knew, like, 
they could tell if you were lefty or righty by yeah. the wounds. And... Yeah. Um, it was also reported that Kelly got onto a train leaving Villisca at 5 a.m. the morning after the murders, and he allegedly told fellow travelers that there was eight dead souls back in Villisca butchered in the beds while they slept, even though the bodies had yet to be discovered. That looks pretty good for him yeah. to, be the, to be the killer. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Every time you say someone, I'm like, it was him. It was him. It was also said that he posted as, as a detective and joined a tour of the house with a group of investigators two weeks later. I mean, that makes sense considering anybody was allowed in. Yeah. yeah. They left the door wide open. You're like, yeah, can you solve this? He didn't even have to pretend to be an investigator. He yeah, just moseyed he on in. No. Yep. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm so frustrated. Eventually, a grand jury heard all those evidence and more linking to Ke- linking Kelly to the crime. He would be arrested shortly after. After his arrest, he was repeatedly interrogated and eventually signed a confession stating, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe and went to the house and I killed them. He later recanted, and the couple who claimed to have spoke to him the morning after the murders on the train changed their story as well. With little left to go off of, the Kelly's case resulted in a hung jury, 11 to 1, in favor of refusing to indict him. And then a second panel of jury members acquitted him. Wow. He continued to travel after this, and his final resting place remains a mystery. There were several more promising leads that eventually were concluded to be dead ends. At one point, it was reported that Sam Moyer, Josiah's brother-in-law, threatened to kill Josiah Moore. However, he was eventually ruled out as a suspect since he had an alibi. Andrew Sawyer, a transient, was also interrogated but not charged. Many transient homeless men were treated as suspicious and were treated as suspects, but none of them ever amounted to a promising lead. Many people continued to confess to the crime, but these confessions never amounted to anything further. So the Moore Sillinger funeral services were held in the town square on June 12, 1912. Reportedly, thousands of people attended. The National Guard blocked the street as the hearses moved toward the firehouse. Their caskets were later carried by wagon to the Villisca Cemetery. The funeral brigade was 50 carriages long. Wow. The Stillinger sisters were buried together side by side. Oh. Yeah. How old um, were they? 12 and eight. Oh, that's terrible. As the years pass, the house itself has not only been considered a landmark, but it's also become a popular spot for true crime hunters and paranormal investigators. You can actually tour the home and spend the night. No. <laughs> <laughs> i want to go to iowa <laughs> you can solve it now 100 years later if you we can. have a week yeah. off coming up we can oh we should <laughs> um, i'd go to iowa i don't know what else to do there besides go there so yeah you can actually tour the home and stay overnight <laughs> i could like kind of see like touring the home as like a historic place yeah yeah, I don't know if I could stay overnight. I think I'd be a little scared. Yeah. Um, 
Over a hundred years later, and the Villisca Axe murders remains a mystery. No one else has ever been tried in the Moore's family murders. The murderer or murderers have long since died and their secret is buried with them. The case remains one of the most horrific unsolved mass murders Wait. in American history. I'm calling that, that psychic Jennifer Hicks. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to pay the 150 bucks and be like, hey, I don't care about my future. I want to know who killed these people. I need to solve some crimes. Yeah. <laughs> that is so crazy. Yeah, they never figured it out. And that whole town owes that family a huge fucking apology. Now, you said the, one, of, one of his brothers was a suspect for a minute. Was that the one who had the keys to his house? Um, I think it was his brother-in-law was a suspect. Gotcha. I don't know if his brother ever was, but I feel like maybe anyone was. Yeah. Especially because he had keys to True. get in and the house was locked so i just want to know how he got in the attic without anyone noticing so i think the whole family except maybe josiah was at the children's day thing and it was an all-day event apparently and josiah might have been like at work so if he did break in it was like all day and night that he was waiting which is like again to your p point insane i saw this like i survived one time where this lady was home alone, like her husband and son went out golfing and she like got out of the shower, was walking past like this room in her house. And there was just like a dude dressed as like a ninja. And he had been in their attic for like three days because he was like, he attacked her and he was like saying things that they had talked about (laughs) earlier. (laughs) Well, you know, remember LaPlante? Sarah, plant. Is that the guy in the walls or something? Yes. Why are people like that? (laughs) I don't know. And it's crazy that, like, I don't blame the people at all for not noticing, but it's crazy that, like, they're able to move around like that without anyone noticing. Yes. There was also, now I'm just like thinking about people in walls and attics are really creepy. In New York, like, two years ago, three years ago, this guy was sleeping and he saw in, like, um the vent there was like a light oh I know this story and it was I think it was like a duplex or something and it was his they had a shared attic and the neighbor this really creepy old guy he was like going up in there he had been like drilling little holes in the wall and he was they ended up putting like a security camera in the attic when the old guy wasn't home and like so they caught him like literally like crawling around in there i mean it's a small sleep it was like a crawl space but he was like watching them so creepy yeah because it didn't wasn't he like watching the kids too didn't they have like a baby or something yeah it was like the mom dad and the baby all slept in the same room and like the the baby's bed yeah i do remember that one that was because i remember seeing the video and it was like black and white and he's just like Yes, it's like I'm gonna bald, buy a house yes. in the middle of nowhere. Never tell anybody where it is. <laughs> oh no, you need a populated area. Yeah, what no are you basement, talking about? No sliding glass doors and no attic. Yeah, because you can go out in the middle of nowhere, but then you'll get you the possibility of being oh, axe murdered. True. Yeah, no one will hear your screams. Oh, God, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> All right, Sarah, you're next, right? Yes. Do you know what you're doing? 
Yes. Is it a murder? <laughs> yes. Wait, the next episode, you need to do the whole episode in your double voice. Oh, should we say goodbye? Bye. Resources for this episode include wikipedia.com, Smithsonian Magazine, iowacoldcases.org, VelliscaIowa.com. Desk Chair Detective.